Wish all of you a very good morning. Thank you, Alex, um, for leading us and just focusing our hearts and minds um, on the truth of God's Word. And thank you, Jordan, for doing a great job with those names. That's one reason, that's one way to not read them. Handball. We're continuing in our series on, um, on what Christians pursue, which is a study of the various behaviors and attitudes, as you know, that characterize uh, born-again believers, those who have been re- regenerated by the power of God's Spirit, who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into light. We want to see how these people live and what Christianity looks like and how does it make a difference to the lives of these people. How do they live? How do they think? How do they behave? And the pursuit that we are looking at today, as you may have guessed from the passage that we looked at in Nehemiah, is the pursuit of joy. Why study this pursuit? I mean, why study about joy? (laughs) It seems almost antithetical that we would need to study about joy. Don't we feel joy? Don't we just, doesn't it come naturally to us? It should. But I want us to perhaps just look at it closely because... We are studying the joy of the Lord. And if anything is of the Lord, it deserves our serious consideration. Our passage focuses on um, the second wave of return uh, of exiles from Babylon. If you know anything about the Jewish captivity, you know that they went into slavery for three years. And then over a period of time, maybe about a hundred and or, or you know, 150 years, there were three waves of returns fr- back from captivity back to uh, Jerusalem. The first return was led by Zerubbabel, 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 if I can say his name right. And he led about uh, 50,000 people back from Israel, and he came back as a political and leader, um, and he started building the, the temple. And the temple was rebuilt, and if you know anything about that time, there were people who were born into captivity who had never seen the temple, and they praised God because the temple was, was built. And there were people who had seen the glory of the earlier temple, and they cried because the new temple was nothing like what Solomon had built. But this passage that we're talking about here today focuses on the second return of exiles back from Babylon after being in captivity for 70 years. God is moving in the hearts of those who are Israel's captors to show Israel that He is God. We find ourselves with the Jews now returning back to their homeland. Many of them would have been born into captivity and they've never seen Israel or Jerusalem. We see the details in Ezra 8. If you just want to turn there for a minute, in Ezra 8. It's a bit confusing because we read about Ezra and Nehemiah and we read about Nehemiah and Ezra and we're reading Ezra and Nehemiah, so it's a bit confusing sometimes, or it could be. But uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are the spiritual and political leaders of Israel during this time, and and their accounts are often overlapping. And so in in Ezra chapter 8, we see verse 1, Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, 
There went up Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, and so on. And we hear of Ezra's forefathers. And this Ezra, just in case there was any confusion, this Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord gave, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested, because the hand of the Lord, his God, was upon him. And some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the month he began to go up from Babylon, and on the first of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. This is the man who we read about in Nehemiah chapter 8, who is reading the word of the law to the people. Whilst I have not done an in-depth study into the history of this account and when chronologically speaking these events occurred, there is some discussion as to whether this passage that we are reading today was in the third exile, or in the third return, or in the second I personally believe that Nehemiah 8 actually fits in between Ezra 8 and 9, but I'm not going to be dogmatic about this. The point of the sermon today is not when this occurred, but really what it tells us about the pursuit of joy. Why do we need to study this subject again? Well, I hope that will become clear to us as we look at four key points, which will be our outline. Number one, the conditions of joy. What, what needs to happen before joy can be experienced? Verse 12 is when the people celebrate and go out with great joy, but what happens before that? What can we learn? What principles can we derive about joy from the passage that we could apply to our lives today? Number two, the convictions of joy or the confessions of joy, what does the believer need to believe before he can experience the joy of the Lord? And similarly, what would we need to believe? What are the confessions and convictions that we need to have before we can get to the joy of the Lord? Number three, the comfort of joy. Where is the believer's joy to be found? What is its source? And what exactly is this comfort that the believer experiences? We sing a lot about the joy of the Lord is my strength. I sang about it in Sunday school. I'm not trying to bag what we sang in Sunday school, but I think we need to mature in our understanding of the joy of the Lord being our strength. We're going to look at this in verse 10, the comfort of joy. And lastly, the conclusion of joy. How is joy made visible in the life of the believer? What does it look like in our lives today? What did it look like back then? What principles can we bring to ourselves to apply to us today? And so having some understanding of the historical context of this passage, let's look at the first point, the conditions of joy. And let us read that text again. And all the people gathered as one man in the square. This is Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate 
And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest, now this is the guy who has set his heart to study the word of God. This is the guy who has set to study and explain and teach the word of God as we read in Ezra 8. Then this Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women and all who could listen with understanding. So perhaps there were some kids there as well or young people. On the first day of the seventh month. And Ezra read from the law before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. How would we like to do that in church? Get here at six o'clock, leave at twelve (laughs) o'clock. But that's what they did. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for this purpose. So obviously he's sort of elevated above the people. I mean, there's heaps of people, so they need to see him. So he's pretty high up, uh, and he's standing with, with, the, uh, with his um, people beside him. And, and their names are Matithia, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Masiah on his right hand, and Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zachariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. It's not a bad thing to lift up your hands when you sing. You know, it's, it's a great thing to be moved by the word of God and just praise him. And they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sharibia, Jamin, Akub, Shabethai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites. These people explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the meaning. It is only when this happens that we can get to verse 12. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions and celebrate a great festival. Why? Because they understood the word of the Lord that had been read to them. Which is why I can say that the verses from 1 to 8 from the conditions that lead to joy, the conditions for joy, They tell us what needs to happen before joy can be experienced in the believer's heart. Very often we we want to go straight to the fun bit, the happy part. We all want to be happy, we want to be joyful, we don't want to experience the storms and the trials of life and we want to go straight to the joy of the Lord is my strength, amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah. But what does it mean? Is it just something we say glibly? Is it just something that rolls off our tongue? Or does it actually mean something significant and substantial to us? And so I want us to dwell for a while on these conditions. And what are they? I think we can find at least four. There may be more. But I think we can find at least four conditions for joy in the text. Number one, the word of God needs to be read and heard. Verse three, Ezra read from the law before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. Now, I'm not saying that you have to stand up and read the word for six hours. If you do, good on you. 
But joy requires the reading and hearing and listening of the word. Number two, the word of God must be held in reverence, in high regard. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And you hear, I mean, if you visit some churches that they have the practice, please stand for the reading of God's word. It's a good practice. It just shows that you reverence the truth, that this is no ordinary, ordinary man speaking, this is God who is speaking. And so as it were, when his words are being spoken, you are literally almost in his presence, and so you stand up out of reverence. Third, the word of God needs to be accurately explained. Verse 8, the people read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that the people understood what they were reading. That's what we try to do over here. That's what we believe in over here in this church, that we believe in expository or exegetical preaching. We explain the word with the word. If we don't understand something in one part of the scripture, we go to another part of scripture because all of it is the word of God. We don't try to explain it with our human understanding. We don't try to explain it with human examples. We try to explain the word with the word because God's truth is the only thing that can interpret God's truth. Number four, the word of God results in worship. Verse six, then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Four conditions for joy. What's common to all of them? The Word of God. You read and listen to the Word of God, you hold the Word of God in high regard, you worship on the basis of the word of God and the word of God is preached and unpacked and unraveled so the people can understand four conditions before joy can be experienced. And this is not the joy that humanity brings or the earthly joy. This is gospel joy, Christian joy, biblical joy, the joy of the Lord. Psalm 19.8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. If I can condense these four conditions into one, it would be this. There is no joy without the word of God. Is that extreme? Is that overreaching, perhaps? What does Jesus say? These things I have spoken to you, I have given you my word. Why? So that your joy may be full. So that my joy may be in you. There is no joy without the word. And someone might say, you know, I agree that my joy comes from Christ, but what does that have to do with the Word? I mean, you know, I, 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 my joy comes from Jesus, not the Word. But hang on. Jesus is the Word. He is the living Word. He is the Word made flesh. There is no joy without Christ. There is no joy without the Word. 
So let me ask you this. Are you lacking in joy? Are you downcast in spirit? Are you perhaps just really overwhelmed by storms and clouds? When was the last time you read the word? When was the last time you made an attempt to really understand and study the word? When was the last time really in, in, in your private time where you worshipped? Do you only worship here on Sunday? Do you value the word? Do you make an attempt to discern between sound doctrine and unsound doctrine? If the answer to any of those questions is no, then there's something for you to fix. It's so... It's so clear in our text that it brings out the relationship between joy and sound doctrine. The people celebrated because they understood the words. The people celebrated because they got it. Joy happens when you get it. Are you getting it? This is not some highfalutin, philosophical, ideological kind of idea. This is not something that rocket scientists understand. This is not something that you need a degree to understand. No, the wisdom of God is foolishness in the sight of the world. Joy depends on sound doctrine. Seriously, our joy depends on what we believe. Joy is at stake here. Why? Because doctrine is another word for truth. And if you think that you can have joy without doctrine, you are basically saying you can have joy without truth, which means you have joy in lies. That doesn't make sense. And yet, it's so obviously wrong, and yet we have so many Christians, so many churches, operating under this false understanding that you can be a Christian without being in the Word. That somehow, uh, your joy is not full, but it's half, it's okay. That... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm in Jesus, but I'm not in the Word. Okay, that's fine, but you know, I'm, I'm operating on 50%, but that's okay. No. Because if the truth of God is absent, then joy cannot be present. Let me state it for you in a different way. Perhaps to, to accentuate the intensity and gravity of the, of the issue. Failure on my part Failure on my part or anyone who stands in this pulpit, failure on our part to correctly interpret the word is to steal your joy. That's how important doctrine is. 
if we stand up here just to give you our opinion, just to give you what we feel, just to give you what happened to us over the weekend, just to give you a movie that we saw and we're trying to get some lessons from it, we are stealing joy from you. Ezra is not standing over there and saying, hey, you know, this is what happened to me in Babylon, and so I reckon this is what you should be doing, and maybe, you know, uh, let's go camping, or let's figure out what to do, and let's, you know, I don't know. He's just reading the word, six hours, seven hours. Ezra trusts that the law of God is powerful enough to produce the desired results. We call that the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. You won't find those words in the Bible. You won't find the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture. But you will find those ideas. For all Scripture is God-breathed and sufficient to train up the man of God in godliness. Sufficient. You don't need anything else. And we, we somehow have, 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 have bought into the idea that, you know, this is Old Testament and we are New Testament saints, so this doesn't really matter to us. And you know, that's irrelevant and that was a different time. It was 2,000 years ago and so things have changed. We're in the 21st century. Our joy is not dependent really on the word. It depends on other things. Those guys didn't really know what they were talking about. We have the internet. They didn't. We know science. They didn't. Times are different. No. Our joy depends on the word. A believer who is not saturated in the word is a believer who is starved of joy. A church that is not preaching the word correctly is a church that is starving the saints of joy. So as you can see, these verses are conditions for joy, but they are also tests to assess the genuineness of our own faith. Do we love the Word? Are we in the Word? Do we worship on the basis of the Word? Are we studying to unpack the Word and understand the Word and really get to the core of what it means? Which brings us to the second point, the convictions for joy. What does the believer need to believe? What do you need to believe and confess in order to have joy? Verse 9, Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Now, it's not that the people were unaware of the law. It's not that they did not know the law. It's perhaps, perhaps, and this is, we can only um, um, guess over here, is all the years in captivity had you know, caused them to forget the law. There have been 70, 100 years in captivity. Some of them have been born into captivity. There's no temple. There's no priesthood. It's, it, there's a sense of being uh, forsaken by God, and so perhaps it was getting all too hard to worship Yahweh. Let's look at the Babylonian gods. You know, we need to integrate in, into their society. We are, they need to like us, because, you know, I mean, it's going to be hard otherwise. So maybe, you know, why be sticklers for this Yahweh thing? Is that us? It becomes too hard 
to follow Christ. It becomes too hard to be biblical in a society and in a culture that is so hostile to the gospel. And so slowly and surely we make decisions and little decisions or, you know, maybe this doesn't really matter, it doesn't really count or maybe I can just do this for a while or I don't know what it is. But slowly and surely Hebrews 2 tells us that we're going to drift. We will drift. A boat that is left unsecured from the harbor is going to drift. And soon it will find itself in the ocean with no land in sight and then it doesn't know which way to go. Is that us? Where is our love for the law? Is the word causing us to grieve? And weep. Do we weep? I'm, I'm serious. It's, this is, this is a, a bodily reaction that the law of God is producing on the people who are reading it. It's the same law. It's the same Bible that we have. They're reading what we read, the law of Moses. We have the same things. Does the law cause us to weep? Why? Why would we weep? Why were the people weeping? For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word can see things about me that I can't even see and if I were to see them, it, I would recoil in horror. And that's what happened at this time, at the reading of the law. The people saw what they didn't see, and it shocked them. Am I this bad? Am I seriously in danger, or have I seriously broken God's law? Have I seriously not kept the law? And what's the, what's the punishment? The punishment is death. The punishment is, is, is banishment from the presence of God. Goodness. Is this me? The people were weeping when they heard the law because that's what the law of God does. It exposes our faults to us. We stand exposed in the light of God's holiness, it's as if he's, he's just looking at us. And we know that He's looking at us and we can't lift our eyes because we are too ashamed to see Him and look Him in the eye. Because we know that we have sinned. We know how, fall, how far we fall from the standards that are in His law. We know that we, we, there's no escape. The, the, the creature is caught, as it were, in, in the headlights of the Creator and it just can't move. There's nowhere to hide. And this is, not, this is not public. This is happening inside. 
where God is doing business with our hearts and saying, hey, there's something wrong here. You need to look at this. This is what my law says as how you should live. And you're not living that way. We grieve because we know that if God does not have mercy on us, we will perish. We understand and we come to that point where we recognize how high His standards are and how low we have fallen and there's nothing that we can do to climb back up. The weight of our sin and the even greater weight of our inability. What shall I do? Peter preaches the the gospel at Pentecost and it cuts people. It says they were cut in the heart. Brothers, what shall we do? We believe everything you said. What are we going to do? Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus. Make no mistake, you know, this is, this is not some superficial sadness. This is not, oops, my bad. This is really understanding the holiness of God the beauty of God and how foul our sin is. It is literally smelling the stench of our sin and understanding that if it's this foul to us, how stenchful would it be to God? We recognize that perhaps we wouldn't even forgive ourselves. And some of us don't. There's a profound sense of grief at having caused offense to a loving God, at being the enemies of a loving God, and, and, and recognizing that there's no hope. But that's the paradox of joy. Because it's only through weeping and grieving over sin that comfort can come. Why? Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who, who are so crushed, who are so broken because they, they, they recognize their sin. They recognize the purity and, and wholeness of the word of God And they recognize that there's nothing that they can do to keep it. And they are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed is someone who is truly fortunate because they they enjoy the favor of God. They, they have the joy of God. And, and, and the word has convicted them in their sin. It has broken them. It has crushed them. And now, it will comfort them. And so we come to our third point. Then Ezra said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The law is read 
Ezra and those with them with him explain the law. They unpack the law. They give the sense of what the law means. From Genesis to Deuteronomy, what does this mean? All these sacrifices, all these strange customs, what does it mean for you as the people, as the covenant people of God, now returning from captivity, because He has moved in the hearts of these kings who were once your captors to let you go? The people understand and they weep. And then comes the comfort. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The purpose of revealing the law to you is not to leave you broken. The purpose of the law, yes, it is to break you and crush your pride and and stop your self-reliance, but then comes the comfort, because there is joy after that. What does it mean for the joy of the Lord to be our strength? How many of us sang the song in Sunday school? Can I just see a raise of hands? One, two. There's a few. You know what I'm talking about. The devil doesn't like it when we laugh. Ha, ha. Right? That's, that's, that's the lyric of the song. And we, we sort of, I, I can speak for myself, I sort of grew up with this idea that Christianity means sunshine and rainbows and smiles all around. I'm sure some of us have that idea that, you know, somehow if I'm not, if I'm not displaying joy on the outside, then there's something wrong with me. I'm not a Christian if I'm not happy all the time. I'm in right, outright, upward, downright, happy all the time. Yeah? I mean, it should be true of us. But sometimes it's not. How do we understand the joy of the Lord is our strength? The word joy there in that text means to rejoice with a personal sense of victory. And the word which is translated strength, and this is really interesting because of the seven or eight uh, translations that I read, only one translated it different. Every, every translation uh, said, use the word strength, but actually that word means a stronghold. It's a place of protection. It's a place of refuge. It's a fortress. And so what Ezra is telling the people, is he understands that they are weeping and grieving because the law has confronted them with their unrighteousness. The law has confronted them with their sin. The law has confronted them about the punishment that awaits them. And they are broken and crushed. And Ezra is saying... God is not against you. He's actually your place of shelter. So don't grieve. Rejoice. God is your refuge. Don't run away from Him. Run to Him. Run into Him. Run inside him. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
So the people are, are broken hearted. The people have been crushed. And Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the broken hearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. So Ezra is basically saying, the one who has crushed you is actually the one who can make you whole again. The law which has crushed you is actually the law that can make you whole again. Don't grieve. Don't be sad. The Lord who has convicted you of your sin is the Lord who is your strength. Don't put your strength in yourself. I mean, we, we heard Alex took us through this, this, um, this um, parable a few weeks ago. Jesus talks about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, both in the temple. The Pharisee prays, looks up to heaven, oh man, you know, I thank you God that I'm not like this guy over here. I'm not like others. This is what I do. Tick, 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 tick. But the tax collector, he doesn't even stand nearby. He, he, he has a reverence that the Pharisee does not have. He has an understanding of the law of God and himself that the Pharisee does not have. And so he looks down and he beats his chest. And he says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's what these people were experiencing. They've come to their end of their righteousness. The law has brought them to the end of their own self-righteousness. And that's what the law does to us. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. He is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's so simple. And yet so deeply and profoundly difficult for us to really understand how lost we are until the law shatters us. Is the word speaking to you? Is it crushing you from within? Is it left you broken? Irreparable? What does 2 Corinthians 7.10 say? For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. If you are broken in that genuine, true, authentic way that is a repentance that will lead to salvation. And so the comfort of joy really is the comfort of salvation. 
The comfort of joy is the comfort of knowing that the God who is against me is now for me. Because I have no longer put my trust in myself, I have put my trust in His Son. He is now for me, not owing to anything that I have done, but everything that He has done for me. There is nothing that I can boast in. It is all completely of grace. And so with Paul I can say, if God is for us, who is against us? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword... But in all these things, in all these trials that are so common to human living, in the midst of all these storms of life, in the midst of all these perils that endanger our soul, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a joy. And that's what Ezra is saying 500 years before Paul. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And just note again, this is the joy of the Lord. It's not human joy, it's not a joy that we somehow produce within ourselves. It's not the high of adrenaline or some serotonin or some other molecule that's floating around in our brain. It's the joy of the Lord. Meaning, this is the joy that he, He gives. It's not a joy that has ups and downs. I mean, we, 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 we think and we know of God as a holy God, but do we think of Him as a joyful God? Or do we have this picture that He always has a frown on His face? Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in His place. 1 Chronicles 16 Psalm 16, 11 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. When the, when the, when the angels and the cherubim and the seraphim are, are flying about saying, Holy, 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 that is a presence of joy. That's not some place where joy is absent We seem to have this idea that there's somehow joy and holiness are two different things. God is a holy God and a joyful God and the joy that He has, He gives. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy that God has Can you imagine how much joy God... He doesn't get His joy from someone else. His is not an acquired joy. His is not a borrowed joy. He is joy. 
He is the fountain of joy. He is infinite joy. And the joy that he has, he gives. And so therefore, the joy that we have is unfluctuating. It is constant. You are weeping and you are grieving over your sin. But do not grieve. Because this unfluctuating, unchanging, eternal joy that God has is now your place of refuge. You can be strong there. You can be untouchable. Do not be sad. Go celebrate. Don't persist in your grief. So many of us when we are and so many, and I'm sure you know people like this who, who when the law really comes home to them, um, they, 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 they recognize their sin, but they can't forgive themselves. God can't forgive me. And that itself is, is an attitude of pride because you're presuming that God has somehow serious limitations on His love and grace. We sing, His love has no measure. The joy that God has, He gives us. Jesus says the same thing in His high priestly prayer. And He's praying to the Father, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world. Why? So that they may have any joy? My joy. I've told them these things. I have given them my word. I've given them your word. Why? So that my joy can be in them and can be full. The joy of the Lord is the joy that Christ has. And the joy is ours when we repent with true repentance. And therefore this joy is our victory. This joy is our hiding place. This joy is our strength. And what does it look like? And we just look at this in our last point. So the Levi in verse 11 and 12. So the Levites calmed all the people. Because there was a right riot going on here. I mean, people were just wailing. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. How is joy made visible in the, in the life of the believer? I, 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 I can identify, it looks like at least just three things. At least three things. Obedience and worship and fellowship. Why worship? Because the Jews were celebrating a great festival. Verse 14 tells us that the festival was the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles. In, verse, in fact, in, in, in verse 17, we learn that the last time this festival was celebrated was actually in the time of Joshua. And this is what verse 18 says, And Ezra read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last, and they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. The law of God which had been forgotten, which had stopped being practiced for so many hundreds of years, the people obeyed. The joy of the Lord made the people obey the Lord. The joy of the Lord results in obedience. What are they obeying? Deuteronomy 31, 10 to 13. Just let me read this to you. 
Then Moses commanded them saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the feast of booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. And this hadn't been done since the time of Joshua. Imagine that. Assemble the people, the men and the women and the children and the alien who is in your town so that they may hear and learn what? The fear of the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. The purpose of the ordinance was that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord. That's worship. That they may learn and hear and fear the Lord. When we learn to be in awe of God, when we are able to treat Him with the esteem and extreme reverence that He deserves, we will have joy. Joy leads us to worship. And lastly, joy leads us to fellowship. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions amongst themselves. You in your small corner, I in mine. No, they went and gave away to those who didn't have. The joy of the believer is not a celebration in isolation. Joy drives us to be with each other. If I'm running into the, 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 the fortress, the, if I'm running into the stronghold of God, and if you're running into the stronghold of God, we're going to see each other. Joy has to, has to result in fellowship. And so what does joy look like? What should it look like in our lives? It should look like obedience and fellowship and worship. This then is the pursuit of joy or the pursuit of the joy of the Lord. Its condition is that it is dependent on the Word of God. There's, there's no joy without the Word. Its conviction drives us to grieve that we are sinners in the, in the hands of an angry God. Its comfort is that this God whose law condemns us is the God who is now for us. And He gives His joy to us. And the conclusion is that it compels us to live lives of obedience and worship and fellowship. If we can pull that all together, if there's one thing that you take away from today, let it be this. The joy of the Lord is a fact. It's not a feeling. The joy of the Lord doesn't depend on whether I feel happy or not. I don't feel happy today. No, you still have the joy of the Lord. If you're His child, your feelings have nothing to do with whether or not you have the joy of the Lord. And I, and I say this because there's sometimes, and, and I, I felt like this, you know, I don't feel like it. 
So what? The joy of the Lord. It's not my joy. It's God's joy. I have it regardless of how I feel. Ezra is not saying, don't grieve. Hey, I think you should feel happy. Don't worry, be happy. That is, that is so superficial. The joy, the everlasting, unending joy of the Lord is your strength. I'm not asking you to feel it. I'm saying take it. It's there. It's not dependent on our feelings. I say this because none of us are ex- exempt from experiencing dark days, clouds of doubt, anxiety. And sometimes like David, we can say, you can look inside and we don't know what's, why we're feeling the way we're feeling, but we can say, why are you downcast, my soul? What's going on? I don't know what's going on. I don't feel the joy of the Lord. Don't worry about it. You have the joy of the Lord. It is your strength. It is your place of victory. And that's not to say that feelings are irrelevant or feelings are sinful. Feelings don't matter. But it is to say that our feelings always need to be inspected in the light of what God has said. I don't trust my feelings because they're not always a reliable source of truth. I trust the Word of God because your Word is truth. What happens when we're confronted with terminal illness? Cancer. Something worse. No cure. Death. Betrayal by someone who we trust. Loss of a job. Can you have joy in these situations? Yes, you can. Yes, you do. Because your joy doesn't come from the situation you're in. Your joy comes from the Lord. Our joy as believers comes from being in Christ. His joy has been given to us in full. Our joy comes from knowing that we have been reconciled to the God against whom we had rebelled. And if He had not shown us mercy, we would have been consumed. But this joy, this God, is now our strength. Look at Jesus, man of sorrows. Yet He is able to offer us joy. Because His joy is not dependent on His situation. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? We fix our eyes on Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And because now you have this example and model, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and loving Father, we need to come to grips with this joy. Father God, we need to understand and have a theology of joy. And Father God, it can only come from your word. It can only come when your word has pierced us and broken us and crushed us and has removed every sense of self-reliance and pride within us to then bring reconciliation so that you who were our judge can now be our refuge and strength. Father God, help us to understand this joy that we have that is of the Lord. Lord, let it truly gladden our hearts. Let it truly give us hope and encouragement for the times in which we are downcast. Let it truly give us joy that results in worship and obedience and fellowship with your people. Teach us, Lord, the joy that comes from you. Lord, so that we would be able to be uplifted and faithful in the times when we are tested because we do not rely on the joy which is in our situation but we rely on the joy of the Lord which is eternal it does not change and it is infinite help us to draw on that joy so that we can live lives of obedience for your glory till Jesus comes Amen